Okay. Revelation 16. Verses 12 through 16 is our text this evening. It stretches and stretches and stretches in my mind. In my mind, I just want to get through this, you know, but, but, it, but it's so important that we don't pass up on anything. And, and I want to begin tonight by, by stating something that really concerns me. I know I've stated it many times before. But I, I wonder why it is that a segment of the church today does not want to recognize the state of Israel and does not want to recognize the scriptural teaching of last day's prophecy as we are going through it, as we have been going through it verse by verse in the book of Revelation, as we have gone through it in times uh, recent uh, past uh, through the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, uh, Zechariah, all of these books we have covered over the last 10 years, looking for this day and everything falling into place in the scriptures. But they, they, there's just this, this uh, animosity towards Israel to, this, to the extent that some in the church today actually have become pro-Palestinian and consider Israel uh, to be an enemy. But they, they're not reading the same scriptures, obviously, that we see in, the, in, the, in, in, in our Bibles. And so I, I mention this because as we get into this passage, we're going to see a couple of places mentioned. And we're going to focus our attention on, on these things in the next couple of weeks. But uh, we're, we're going to see places mentioned that are in the Bible and that are existing today. And God says that these things are going to be happening in the last days, during the time of the Great Tribulation, it, in these places or at these places. So, how do you spiritualize or over-spiritualize those things if we see them today? That's the point. So, let's look at this passage as we get into uh, the, uh, the last... Uh, Bowls, the sixth and the seventh bowls. We're going to look at the sixth bowl tonight. Tonight, it says, "In the sixth angel poured out his bowl, the bowl of God's wrath, the judgment of God's wrath. Uh, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. I'm sure we've all seen the map that there is still a Euphrates River over in the area of Iraq and in Persia, that area over there, or Iran, and, and all of those nations." And its water was dried up. Now remember, this is a prophecy. This is the vision that John is getting. He sees that the water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. I talked about this back in chapter 9. We're going to cover it a little bit tonight. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs. Now notice, not frogs, but like frogs. So this, this is, in, in fact, some, somewhat symbolic here. But the spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, which is Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, which is the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now notice this is a quotation now. This is, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Har Megiddo, or Armageddon. The hill of Megiddo. Or the place of troops. Some have translated this to be the place of slaughter. Now, this is just a, a general map of the area. Uh, it, it's just up here so you can focus on me as we get started in our study. But as a matter of review, let's consider that we are in the midst of seeing the last of the three judgments of God to be brought upon the unbelieving and rebellious earth. 
and, and this world of earth dwellers. And already we have looked at the seven seal judgments. We have looked at the seven trumpet judgments. And now we are completing our study of the seven bowl or the seven bile judgments. In regard to these last judgments, it is important that we remember what the Apostle John said back in chapter 15. As a point of review, we need to go back to see what he says. So in Revelation 15, verses 5 through 8, he said, After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open, and out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands, And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, in a word, this is it. This is it. These are the judgments to be completed. As the seventh bowl is poured out of the righteous judgment of God, His wrath being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world will be complete. A few weeks ago, we saw in the first bowl judgment a loathsome sore upon those who received the mark of the beast. The second bowl judgment, as it will be poured out, will affect the oceans as all life in them will die. Now, the comparison, of course, is as we went back to the, uh, to the uh, uh, seal and, and, and trumpet judgments, only a third of the, uh, uh, the fresh water supply and all of that was, was contaminated. This is talking now about all of it. So this is, the, this is the way that the increase of God's judgments are coming upon the earth through the seven-year period of tribulation. So all we can say is that when it first starts out, the deception of the Antichrist, you know, coming and saying that he's a man of peace, and of course wanting to establish peace between Israel and all of its enemies, it gets to the middle of that that three and a half year period, and what, what do we find? That by the middle of the three and a half year period, where everybody thinks there's peace, now he breaks the peace in essence by proclaiming himself to be God, by going into the temple. This is what, uh, you know, here again, uh, we talked about the temple and, and the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque all there on, on the, uh, or, or the, uh, the Dome of the Rock Mosque, I should say, or uh, the Dome of the Rock Monument there on the Temple Mount, being actually it, it, the possibility of both of them being on there because as a sign of peace. We, we, we really talked a lot about that. But the point is that now, everything begins to increase after that three and a half year period. And we see the greater sense of the vile judgments now coming in the, in the last three and a half year period, which is called the Great Tribulation. And even still, toward the end of that three and a half year period, it just grows in intensity. So I'm just, I'm just kind of wanting to get us back into thinking how, you know, what's going to be happening in these seven years. The third angel would pour out his bowl on the fresh water supply, which will become contaminated so that no one will be able to drink from any source. And as unfair as all of this may seem, it isn't. For man apart from Christ will only get what he deserves. Man apart from Christ, when given the opportunity to accept the truth about their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who himself came and took upon himself flesh to die for the sins of men, when that person is rejected, then only judgment can be theirs. What are you saved from tonight? You are saved from that judgment. Do you all understand that? You know, when we talk about being saved, you know, the world mocks Christians who just say, yes, we want you to pray this prayer to be saved. Well, they say, pray, safe from what? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty safe here on this earth. I'm pretty safe in the things that I do. We have to let them know what we're safe from. We're safe from sin and death, generally speaking, but we are being saved from this wrath that comes upon a Christ-rejecting world. This is why we stress so much that we as the church 
the entity that is called the church today will not be here during that time period because God is dealing with the sins of men who are going to reject Christ. While during that time some will come to Christ, therefore those are the tribulation saints. Then there's Israel that God is going to deal with. The seven, the seven years is for them. But we're saved from the wrath of God. So those apart from Christ are only going to get what they deserve. Nothing more. So we saw two angels proclaiming that God's judgment is righteous. And as we stated before, out of the mouth of two witnesses, the matter is established. Now, from there we moved on to the fourth angel pouring out his bowl upon the sun. And in this judgment we see the intensity of the sun increase to the point where men will be scorched by its heat. We said the last time that, uh, you know, this is, this is real global warming. This is what, you know, we've we got people talking about global warming today long. You don't know what global warming is. This is global warming. And the way that it is stated implies that only those who receive the mark of the beast are affected and afflicted by this judgment. The end result will be no repentance from sinful, rebellious man, but blasphemy against God. The very God that they say they do not believe in, the very God that they say, you know, well, you know, doesn't exist, is the very God that they blaspheme. Now you tell me, if people that are atheists, or only atheists because they don't, they don't want to believe in God, or they truly don't believe there's a God. You read the book of Romans chapter 1, and it tells us that every person has that knowledge that there's a God. Lastly, we saw the fifth angel pour out his bowl upon the throne of the kingdom of the beast and his reign became full of darkness. In fact, it will become so dark that it will cause people to be in pain and they will gnaw at their tongues. The end result again is going to be blasphemy. So understand that the heart of unrepentant man, it's the same way today, it was the same way in the days of Noah. The heart of unrepentant man is cold. It is heartless, it is hard, and it is lifeless. In, in fact, it is just dead. Well, the same will, will, will be seen in the heart of unrepentant man in the time of the tribulation. Unrepentant man will be cold, hard, and lifeless. And it's just that, dead. But that is what we've been taught in the scriptures of the heart of man from the very beginning. From the fall, actually. What is that? That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in his mercy, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. In Christ. Christ is our life. Does this not, is this not what, what it says in the, in, in the epistles, what Paul says, that Christ who is our life, when he shall appear, so shall we also appear with him in glory. Christ who is our life. Paul said in, in, in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's our life. The man without Christ is dead. And as we move into the last half of, of chapter 16, we're reintroduced. Reintroduced to a river mentioned to us in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And that is the river Euphrates. I want you to go back. Again, we're just reviewing, but this is very important for us to look at. Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14. Because I want you to see where the river Euphrates is first mentioned. It's mentioned in verses uh, 10 through 14. It says, now a river went out of Eden. Now Eden is the garden, isn't it? A river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, uh, the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and, and the onyx stone are there. Uh, the name of the second river is Gihon. It is uh, the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. Is there a land called Cush in the Scriptures? Yes. 
once everything began to settle after uh, the flood, there is a land called Cush. Who wrote this? Moses wrote this. So Moses knew of the land of Cush. Certainly God gave him the wisdom to understand that that land was, you know, that these rivers were still going to exist. And it would be the land of Cush, which is actually uh, down south in, in, in the African uh, continent. Uh, anyway, we go on. It says the name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. How interesting that we have the Euphrates in the first book of the Bible and plays a prominent role in the last book of the Bible. We'll come back to the Euphrates in just a moment. Because we're also introduced to a place called Har Megiddo, Armageddon. So this is not, as somebody once said uh, uh, not long ago, you know, the, don't think of the, you know, the movie with Bruce Willis. Yeah, Armageddon, you know, oh, Armageddon, you know. Ar Megiddo, Har Megiddo, which means the hill of Megiddo or the hill of troops or the place of troops. Two altars of sacrifice dominate the history of the world. Two altars. Two altars dominate the history of the world. Both of them are found in the Middle East, particularly in what is called the Holy Land. One takes place on a mountain, another takes place on a plain. Both are bathed in blood. One is called Mount Calvary. The other, Armageddon. The plain of Megiddo. On both, wrath descends upon sin. On Mount Calvary, grace redeemed the world by the sacrifice of God's Son. On the plains of Megiddo, the armies of the world, the enemies of God, are offered up as a sacrifice of doom. In both cases, the enemies of God and His people, despite themselves, work out the perfect and sovereign will of God. For it tells us in Revelation 17, verse 17, it says, For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God is in control. God is in control. Nothing is out of His control. In the book of Romans, again, chapter 1, Paul talks about the fact that God gives people over to a debased mind, to a reprobate mind. And even when He does that, it serves God's purposes. Whether we can understand it fully or not, it serves God's purposes. Getting back to those two places, those two altars of sacrifice. At one is heard the triumphant cry, Tetelestai, it is finished. At the other, proceeding from God's temple, The final cry, if you'll notice at the bottom of verse 17 of chapter 16, it says, it is done. On the cross, it is finished. At Armageddon, God says, it's done. But first, we must look at the pouring out of the sixth vial, or bold judgment in verse 12. So let's go back to verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Is there a Euphrates today? Yes. He pours out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. The outpouring of the sixth bowl of wrath closely resembles the sixth trumpet judgment. Closely resembles it. 
We're told in verse 13 of Revelation 9, it says, The sixth angel sounded the trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, these are not angels that come out of heaven. These, because they're bound, they are released by God. They are bound, obviously they're fallen angels. And then it says, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. And now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Back then, in chapter nine, I said we talk a little bit more about these things, and you know. But the more you, the more you look at that or listen to that description from a first-century uh, uh, apostle John, this is how he is seeing these things. It makes us wonder when we look at uh, modern warfare today how this can resemble things that can be happening in, 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 in just the near future. But in our study of this passage, I stated that these four angels, as I said, were bound, indicating that they were fallen angels, distinct from the angels of chapter 7 that were actually sent out of heaven. So why they were let loose in this particular area of the world, we really aren't told. But what we learned in Genesis about the river Euphrates is that it flowed again out of Eden. Now understand, out of Eden, what happened in Eden? That is where Satan began his first diabolical work against our first parents, Adam and Eve, which resulted in the fall of mankind. It was there that the first murder was committed. Cain killing his brother Abel. It was there in that very same vicinity, where man's first organized rebellion against God took place. What we would call Babel, which really becomes Babylon. The fountainhead of idolatry and the fountainhead of occult practices. And let us not forget that it is in that same area, uh, has the river Euphrates moved Still in the same place, it is in that area that the spread of militant Islam, listen, militant Islam, it's grown of course, I'm not saying that it's only in this area, but the, the, the spread of militant Islam throughout the region of the earth has gone out from there. And as we look at our text in comparison to the passage in chapter 9, we have to consider the rise and the juxtaposition of Islam in the region to dispel, as it were, the idea that the kings of the east is a reference to China's army. China! Everybody says, well, you know, we, we, we're drying it up because there, there can only be one major... This is what they used to say in the 70s when we were studying this at the time back then, because, you know, Islam wasn't a, a, didn't appear to be a tremendous threat. It, it was kind of like regional threats, but not this worldwide threat. We had more of a threat from Russia when it was the Soviet Union, and threats when, when China had grown so big because of Mao, Mao Zedong. So we would say, well, they had over almost a billion people in China. Well, they certainly could man a 200 million man army. And then, you know, if you, uh, the, the Soviet Union actually had, had begun a work on the Euphrates to dam that river up, which would dry it up. But we don't know where that is right now. Maybe it might come back to where they'd use that particular dam to dry up the Euphrates for this particular purpose, because that's what the Scripture says. The waters are going to be dried up. But China? This is, what, this is where we have to come back to 
scriptural consistency. Scriptural consistency. We talk about all of these nations that, God, that Christ is going to deal with. I mean, let's say, okay, so China and Russia, possibly, right? Today, Russia's back in the news. Putin is, is uh, trying to resurrect, in a sense, the old Soviet Union. Though he's not saying it that way. Hey, he was KGB. Well, we don't want to go into that. Or for that matter, what about North Korea? Because, I mean, those guys are really, you know, they're a pain, aren't they? And, and, and so we, we think, well, maybe a combination of these military powers. But let me, let me just say that, that, that chapter 9, uh, this is a little, little parenthesis here. The chapter 9 and chapter 16 may be describing two separate operations of the same conflict. But let's just for a moment just ponder the argument that the word kings, the kings of the east, implies leadership of many countries and not just one. And if it is just China, well, China only has one leader. Armies aren't called kings unless led by them. So we, again, we need to kind of consider this. I know I, I talked a little bit about it before, but I need to talk in great detail. I want to be a little bit more detailed about this because this is called isolating the text without exploring and investigating the rest of Scripture. When looking carefully at the Word of God, there is no other passage that would connect kings of the East with China. I don't see China mentioned except in a couple of uh, very, very rare, obscure areas where the word sinim, S-I-N-N-I-M, is used to mention those that, you know, after the spreading of, of the, uh, the nations or, or the, uh, as, as the formation of nations were coming, there was this group that would go far east, you know. And S-I-N, of course, sino uh, is, a, is a word that's used for Far East relations, you know, Japanese, Chinese, and all of that. But I don't see where that is being used at all when it comes to current global issues. So there, there's no other passage that would connect kings of the East with China. But there is one text, I mean, there's something that we need to kind of consider. Just, just bear with me, Okay. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. You're all from, familiar with this from Christmas time. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, uh, or Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. You know what the word wise men, what, what the word is? It's, it's magoi, M-A-G-O-I, or magos actually. And we get the word mag, the magi. We've all heard that. You know, that's connected to the word magician. Right? Yeah, it is. But, but though the word for wise men is used, magoi, it denoted, what it truly denoted was learned men from eastern nations devoted to astronomy, devoted to religion, and devoted to medicine. The name itself was from the root word in the Babylonian language, so that kind of gives us a, an idea of what region that word comes from. It comes from the Babylonian word that meant a high official in government. Hence, a king. At Christmas time, we don't sing, We three sorcerers of Orient are. First of all, it's just too many syllables for king instead of, you know, sorcerers. We three sorcerers of Orient are. We three magicians of Orient, you know, this doesn't this doesn't rhyme. So kings is better, but in fact, that's how they were seen, and it wasn't just three, by the way, and more than likely, it was more than just Babylonian. It was also Persian because of the person named Daniel, who received the prophecies that we've touched upon in our study of the book of Revelation, dealing with the last days. But in his prophecies, he prophesied the Messiah. 
And these wise men from the east, when they came looking, they came to Bethlehem. How did they know? Don't forget that Daniel lived through the Babylonians and the Persians. the Medo-Persians, and so on. So, let me just say that when Scripture is examined, getting back here, uh, especially the book of Isaiah, if you look through the book of Isaiah and you study, do, do, do a very close examination of the book of Isaiah, we find that the Messiah, the Messiah, our Messiah, Yeshua, is going to battle. Listen, he is going to battle Babylon. He's going to battle Assyria. He's going to battle the Philistines. Well, by the way, Philistines is the is kind of the root word for Palestinian. He will battle the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Philistines, the, uh, the Moabites, Damascus. It tells us which is Syria. Uh, Cush. We mentioned Cush earlier, which is Sudan and Somalia. Egypt, very clear, Edom, which is Jordan, and Tyre, which is Lebanon. Just to name a few, and and, and by the way, Arabia is mentioned in there too, but all of them are considered today as Muslim nations. And yet globally, all nations to a certain extent will be represented in this war that we're aiming toward here in, in this study, this war against God. It is not a a war of nation against nation. It is a war of nations against God. The intention may be to wipe out Israel, but ultimately the battle is against God and His Messiah. Turn to Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, I should say. Psalm 2, verses uh, 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Why are they plotting this vain thing, this useless thing? It is useless to to war against God. You're not going to win. And by the way, that, that kind of works in our own personal lives as well. Don't war against God. You're not going to win. Don't argue with God. You're not going to win. Don't argue with His Word. You're not going to win. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The king of the earth, or the kings of the earth, set themselves, notice, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Have you been paying attention as to the first five bold judgments? What's happening? No water? No seafood? Boils? Diseases? Scorched skin? And all they do is blaspheme God? And in essence rise up in in battle against God? Joel chapter, oh by the way, if you go on to verse 4, it says that God laughs in derision. We won't go there. Let's go to Joel chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. It says, for behold in in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. What's happening today? Aliyah. People are leaving their their countries, uh, you know, their adopted countries the Jewish people are getting up and they're going back to Israel. Many people have, have left the United States. They've, they've uh, 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 made Aliyah. They have gone home to Israel. Uh, that's happening now. Verse 2, it says, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people. The way that they've treated my people, in other words, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, they have also divided up my land. Oh, listen, even the United States of America today, what are we trying to do? This goes, you can even go back to the Bush administration on this. Trying to divide the land of Israel, trying to divide especially the city of Jerusalem, which belongs to God. He says, don't mess with my city. 
Jump down to verse 9. It says, proclaim this among nations. Prepare for war. You want war? You better prepare for it then. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of, the, of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and, and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and, and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be weakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The, vat, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. We'll talk more about the outcome later. I think you all know what the outcome is. In chapter 19, we'll deal with that outcome. Suffice it to say that this final war in the latter half of the tribulation period, which we call the Great Tribulation, will be set out in a few stages. First of all, the Euphrates is dried up to allow access for this great army to march towards Israel since Har Megiddo is in the land of Israel. Those of you who have been to Israel, you've been to Megiddo. We go there. On one of the days that we tour in Israel, we, we actually go up to Mount Carmel, where Elijah the prophet defeated the prophets of Baal. It is there that you go up onto this roof of this building there, and you get to see the whole of the Valley of Megiddo. I'll show a picture in just a minute. Sometimes I think it's worth a trip just to see that. Just to see that one place. Although it's really worth a trip to see everything. And you should come with me. I really love to go and tell you about it. And show it to you. I think I mentioned earlier that this next trip that we're going to do is going to be very focused on, on prophetic things. So this is one of the key things that we're going to deal with when we're there. But uh, we're going to talk about everything else too. But, but I really want to get there. So come on, let's go. But, but here's the thing. Armageddon is in the land of Israel. There is, is an, a land named Israel. And there is a valley. And in that valley is Har Megiddo, Armageddon. The armies of the east will advance, not based on some fortuitous happenstance like, wow, man, it dried up, let's go. They, in essence, will be led as sheep to the slaughter. Remember, this is called the place of slaughter. And consider the source of the deception. Because it isn't just that it is in God's will. But what God has allowed is this deception. The Lord's will and purpose notwithstanding. Look at verses 13 through 16 of our text. We're going to close here with this. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Again, remember, they're not like, like you know, Satan opens his mouth and a big, huge bullfrog, ribbit, come out. But these spirits like frogs. Now, talk about that in a moment. Coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are spirits of demons performing signs, notice, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And then the Lord says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together to the place called, in Hebrew, Har Megiddo or Armageddon. Now the phrase, going back to verse 13. And I saw. Remember, John is seeing this vision. So the phrase, and I saw, is a continued reference to the sixth bowl judgment. It's a reference to the sixth bowl judgment. In verses 13 and 14, the unclean spirits are spirits of demons. 
Is there demonic activity today on this earth? Quite a bit. Quite a bit of demonic activity. We could, we could spend a whole hour and a half just talking about a few of the things that, we, that can be seen today as, as something influenced by demonic activity. But these are wicked spirits that actually work miracles. More than likely, they are deceptive kinds of miracles. In other words, slide a hand or whatever. But specifically, what these demons are doing, they have been specifically commissioned to gather the kings of the earth and to control them in the final conflict or for the final conflict at Megiddo, much in the same manner that Hitler was possessed and controlled. To do what he did, not only in the desire to take over the world, but in more than anything to do complete extermination of the Jewish people. Demon possession. Not just demon oppression. I do not believe, and we can go through a study, I've done studies on this before. I do not believe that Christians can be demon possessed. I do believe that Christians can be demon oppressed. We can be oppressed by demons. We cannot be possessed by them because who possesses our hearts but the Lord himself. We can be oppressed. But the point of the matter is, Hitler was a possessed man. He was possessed by the devil. He could have been possessed by demons, but it just seemed like the devil was probably in control of that. And if you ever see those documentaries with, with, with Hitler's pre, uh, preaching, because that's all I can call it, Hitler preaching, giving speeches they would call it, but he was preaching his gospel, Mein Kampf, my struggle. But this little man... And and you know how deceptive this is? Here was a man who was Austrian. His hair was darker than everyone else, and yet he, he espoused this Aryan race. But he was just a little man. Nothing. Except he was possessed. And he deceived millions of people. So think about that. Remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 24. It says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. If possible. Paul himself would add in 1 Timothy 4, 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Very quickly, let me ask, why frogs? Why frogs? Simply, frogs are considered unclean. So this image of slimy, yucky frogs jumping right out of the mouths of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet is especially something to take note of. It's just... It kind of ties us also into the plagues of Egypt, if you go back to the book of Exodus. But the world is being persuaded daily... By the perverse, the unclean, and the depraved and pervasive speech of the enemy throughout society and in every culture that exists. More and more people are falling to that deception that good and Christian and Jewish is evil, while everything else that is wicked and detestable is the new good. Is this the reason why then John was so emphatic about loving the world when he said, do not love the world? I know I've used it, I use this a lot, but I, I've got to bring it to our attention about what ties us to this passage today. Do not love the world or the things in the world. To love means you put 
things in the world higher than the Lord Himself. Higher than the things of God. Higher than the cross of Jesus Christ. Higher than the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of Christ and the word of God. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Emphatic. Not there. There are people who go to church every week, every weekend. They might sing songs. They might give tithes. They might even open a Bible or, uh, to a page or two with no, not knowing exactly where to go. It doesn't matter. They want to hear messages that make them feel good or that don't condemn, as people say, uh, a certain type of people or whatever. But the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The deception hasn't finished. The deception hasn't ended from the garden. Did God really say? Has God really said? Is God really saying? It's in the church now, the emerging church. We, 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 we passionately brought people down here to, to say, listen to what the Word of God says and don't just believe things just because somebody says they're believers. But you have to check everything out. The world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who, abide, he who does the will of God abides forever. He who does the will of God, not just knows the will of God, but does the will of God abides forever. We've got to look at these last two verses for this evening, 15 and 16. Again, this, this statement of Jesus, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they, they see his shame. Uh, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Before the last bold judgment is poured out, in other words, the seventh, before the last bold judgment is poured out upon the nations, there is a solemn pause. This is the pause, verse 15. That's the pause. And the Lord himself speaks. And he reminds them of his soon sudden coming and the ensuing battle of that great day. He says that he will come as a thief, showing that the church will not be on the earth at that time, being that the Thessalonian believers were assured that that day would not overtake them as a thief. First Thessalonians 5 verse 4 says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You're not in darkness, you see. The day of the Lord, from the beginning of the, of the seven-year period of tribulation, is a time of darkness. No matter that the first three and a half years is all deceptively given out as peace. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that the day should overtake you as a thief. Well, that day is about, all about darkness as the time in the world will be engulfed in darkness. Here is the final warning then to those tribulation saints as well. To watch for His coming and to keep themselves unspotted from defilement and from the satanically inspired activities of those last days. The garments mentioned are not literal garments, but symbolically speaking of character as they oftentimes do in scriptures, as in other scripture references. Keep your character in Christ. Well, that's not just for the tribulation saints. That's an encouragement for us here today. To keep our character in Christ. I want to close with these words of John in 1 John chapter 2. If you were kind of still there, let me, let me close with these. It's the end of the chapter. It says, And now little children abide in Him. This is to the church. Now little children abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed. Not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Let's not be ashamed. If Jesus were to come tomorrow, will we be ashamed? Or will we be ready?
Not that we're perfect, because we're, we're not perfect. But we are being perfected daily. So we need to be ready for that day without shame. Because don't forget that Jesus took our shame and he nailed it to a tree. He nailed it to the cross. Lastly, it says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So, folks, until Jesus comes, let's practice righteousness. In other words, the the word practice here deals with just live day by day doing the things that honor God. Our practice, you know, doctors have practices, right? And lawyers have practices. We have practices too. Ours is to practice the love of Christ and the will of God. There is the Valley of Megiddo, the Jezreel Esdralon Plain. That's an aerial photograph, but it's very similar to what you will see on Mount Carmel when you get up there. But there's Megiddo right there, down in the, right in the middle of the picture. Will you be practicing righteousness when he comes? I hope that you will. He can come at any moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us, Lord, to this time now. I'm waiting upon you for mercy and for grace. We are so blessed and so thankful that you have loved us with an everlasting love. 